Back to Matthew's Gospel we turn and back to the 15th chapter again. And actually for the last time in this series, we have uh, often found ourselves in Scripture, haven't we? Over these past few decades that we've spent in it together and, and during the past several months in particular. And the faces of those who look desperately to Jesus for the help that they needed, we see our own in the unmasking of sinful hearts by the searching eye of Jesus, we've had our own exposed. And in the loving encouragement Jesus has offered to lepers and lame men and women, boys and girls, we've had our hearts warmed and called again and summoned in Jesus' calls to new obedience. But I cannot help but wonder if we, and this congregation in particular, might not be able to see ourselves most, most clearly that is, in this chapter of Matthew, to be able to relate the most to the people that Jesus meets and to whom he ministers in our passage today. Let's watch and see if it is not so. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you will open our eyes to see marvelous things from your law and that we may see ourselves here described and the great salvation about which we've already spoken and sung this morning that is ours in Christ Jesus. So send your spirit powerfully now in our midst and in our hearts to do this work that we seek for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 15, we'll pick up at verse 29. Jesus went on from there, from the place, of course, that we saw him last time where he had met with the Canaanite woman whose faith he described as great. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame, walking, the blind, seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place as this to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. 
And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. I remember as a child occasionally uh, taking what seemed like a long ride in the car with our family from our home on the southern border of Chicago to the western suburbs. And upon arriving, we spilled out of the Oldsmobile wagon, uh, the uh, what was it, station wagon, and, and my five siblings and me, and, and followed our parents to the front of a modest brick home. But we would not reach the front door before it would burst open, and a man considerably older and shorter than my father explode from the house with a shouting, sharp, and raspy voice, Is that you, you Gentile dog? To which my father retorted with similar animation, something like, and that is, is that you, you Hebrew swine? <laughs> Not exactly the, the words you'd expect to hear, you know, right before two men virtually fell into each other with a hearty handshake and grabbing forearms and, and smiling, matching smiles from ear to ear. You see, a Jewish man had married into my father's family, and somehow he had developed a particular affection for my father, which was reciprocal, despite their deep differences. Similar exchanges in the Chicago area might have been followed by shots fired, and actually they still are, and often. Deep division between Jew and Gentile is nothing new, and has continued for centuries, even millennia. It is not so deeply veiled here behind the story we have, the history we've just read, as you know from having heard the account last week of the Canaanite woman who met with Jesus, uh, with what seemed to be, was met by Jesus with what seemed to be very, very harsh response to her request for the healing of her daughter. You remember what Jesus said, it's, it's not right to take children's bread, the children's bread, and throw it to the dogs, that is to Gentile dogs. Jesus was using a common racial slur to refer to this Gentile woman as he was testing her faith. Faith, would you remember, the Lord went on to call great faith, rewarding it with the instant healing of her daughter. Well, even if Matthew had not told us that uh, she was a Canaanite, we could easily have deduced that she was, uh, that this woman falling before the Jewish Messiah named Jesus was a Gentile. Remember that back in verse 21, we read that this took place in the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre, if you will look at the map in the back of your Bible sometime uh, later, was some 25 miles north of Galilee and Sidon some 25 miles north from that. So Jesus is a long, long way from home. He is deep in Gentile territory. It may have taken weeks or even months for Jesus to make his way that far, and it's entirely possible, likely in fact, that he spent months in that far northern territory. He's no longer now in this instant in the very same spot where he was, where the woman of great faith met him, because as we read just a moment ago, he went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Where is he? 
Well, from Mark's parallel account, we know that he has now come to the region known as Decapolis. And this is where your school studies uh, come in handy, particular, your, particularly your labors in word anatomy. Deca is a unit of, often used for a unit of measurement to indicate how many? Deca, 10, yes, thank you. And polis, as you all know, means city, as in Annapolis, Indianapolis. And so put them together and you get 10 cities, which is exactly what Decapolis was, a league of 10 cities in the Transjordan region, that is across the Jordan from the Jewish, the concentration of Jews, so east of the Jordan we're talking about, and known, these cities, to be inhabited mostly by Gentiles. Now, what is re truly remarkable about what we've just read this morning is that Jesus, Jesus is doing the exact same things here, deep in Gentile territory, with Gentile crowds, as he had done earlier in more heavily Jewish areas with mostly Jewish crowds. If what we've just read seems uh, terribly repetitious with what we've read before in Matthew, well, there is a very simple and uncomplicated reason for that. It is. Healing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute. We've seen him do this before in spades, but usually for the Jews. The fact that these are Gentiles whom he is now healing left, right, and center is also indicated by their worshipful response recorded there in verse 31. And they glorified the God of Israel. Now that line, glorify the God of Israel, certainly reads as if it means that they ascribed honor to a God who originally was not their God, but the God of another people, the God of Israel. Says William Hendrickson in his commentary, something truly wonderful is happening here. There had been a time when many people from this region, you remember, made a, made a trek to Galilee. We read about them back in chapter 4 to be healed by Jesus. But now the prophet from Galilee has actually come to them. What a blessing. It was a blessing indeed. It's a blessing that Matthew wants you to note very carefully now. Matthew has been described as the most Jewish gospel in the Bible, the most Jewish of the four. But Matthew, as we've seen, also has an open eye to the Gentiles, doesn't he? We've noticed as much from the very opening of the book, as a matter of fact. Had Matthew, you know, had Matthew at the beginning of his gospel wanted to include the most prominent women in his genealogy, in the genealogy of Jesus, that is, he certainly could have included Israel's most famous matriarchs. You know, Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and maybe Rachel. Instead, he highlights four women who were either Gentiles or had significant Gentile associations. Tamar, the Canaanite, you know, Rahab, 
from Jericho. Ruth the Moabitess. And Bathsheba, who was likely born a Hebrew, but is described by Matthew simply as the wife of Uriah. And what was Uriah? Do you remember? Uriah the, yes, Hittite. Matthew alone goes on to report the visit of the Gentile Magi to come and honor young King Jesus. And we remember from earlier in Matthew about the centurion who displays exceptional faith. And more recently, the Canaanite woman whose faith Jesus describes as great, mega faith. The Lord willing, we'll come to Jesus' execution. And what shall we find there but a Gentile, the first to acknowledge him as God's son after the cross. And we are keenly aware of where Matthew is taking us, aren't we? We all know where this gospel ends, right? Go! Make disciples of the nations, all the nations. What Jesus is doing here in Decapolis, or what we might call rightly Gentileville or even Paganopolis, is actually showing the Great Commission before he commands it. His concern, in other words, extends beyond the narrow mission described to the Canaanite woman, as we heard last week. True enough, he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But his mission is for the world, all the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This love Jesus shows in feeding the 4,000 here and feeding these dogs, feeding the Gentiles the bread of heaven. That's the love, the worldwide love we've just read about. Now, a couple of things need to be said about the story. It's similar in many ways to the story, the history of the feeding of the 5,000. They're so similar, in fact, that liberal scholars who do not share a very high regard as we do for the Bible, support their very low views by writing off this account as a spurious repetition. But it's not the case that we have here just a simple, uh, simply a non-historical doubling of the same story. Matthew is moving with very deliberate purpose here as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Bible scholar Leon Morris clearly regards the two incidents as distinct, pointing out that the numbers of the people are quite different in the two incidents, as are the quantities of food and the amounts left over. The words for basket are different. We could translate the one with the five, the baskets with the 5,000 as baskets and, and these as larger hampers from the Greek. The people in this incident have been with Jesus for three days, whereas in the incident they just... Uh, they had, before they had just gone around the lake to head him off. The times appear to be different. The earlier feeding being when the grass was green, and that is in the spring. There's no mention of grass in our passage today, is there? In fact, the ground is hard. This is probably late summer. The important thing is this. These people, this is the real point. These people are Gentiles. They're Gentile dogs, yes. But notice that they were healed just as the Jews had been. 
they were fed just as the Jews had been. They were served by the disciples just as the gathering of Jews had been. The point is clear. God loves the Gentiles as much as the Jews, and Jesus is as much for one as he is for the other. As Paul will put it later, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. That's who you are. You are heirs according to the promise. Now, that's where some Christians of some traditions jump up from their pews and yell, uh, amen out loud. But uh, Presbyterians, yes, even if great ardor, uh, say amen in their hearts. Now, remember Jesus saying to that Roman centurion back in chapter 8 that many will come from the east and west. We, we heard it in the call to worship this morning, as a matter of fact, from east and west, from north and south in Psalm 107. Jesus picks it up. Many will come from east and west and recline at table. He's talking to the Roman Gentile centurion here. And eat at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He was talking. Jesus was talking about you. That's who Jesus was talking about to the Roman centurion. He was talking about you and me as far west as Owensboro, Kentucky, and, and Rockport, Indiana, that far west, they will come and eat at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It was a lesson that the disciples had yet to learn. They were starting to learn it, I think, as they were standing there in the Decapolis region and watching as Jesus fed Gentiles just the same way he fed Jews, with the same bowels of compassion overflowing for them and love. Remember, it is Jesus who took the initiative here, isn't it? It is he, not the disciples, who raised the concern this time. Verse 32, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with, now, with me now three days and have nothing to eat. This is their opportunity to learn what the Canaanite woman seemed instinctively to understand. Not only that, no true household can exist unless it provides for more than its own children, but that the field in which the kingdom of God will eventually have to be proclaimed cannot be less than the whole world, for nothing smaller than the world is the object of his love. Are you starting to get the point? Are we not most clearly able to see ourselves now in this chapter of Matthew and to relate the most to these people Jesus meets and to whom he ministers here? We are a congregation, as I look out at you, that I would say is mostly, if not exclusively, composed of Gentiles. What that means, 
dear flock, is that we were the outsiders. We were the strangers. We were, as Paul says, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. He came. He came. He came to preach peace to you, to us who are far off. Through Him we have access in one spirit to the Father, through the cross. So we, who, we are no longer strangers. We are actually, oh my, we've got the glory in this. We are fellow citizens with the saints. We are members of the household of God. We, the Gentile dogs, we are the children of God because of Christ, because the love of God came to us. Praise be to God, dear flock. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. None of us, none of this comes to us as a surprise, of course. The prophets of old told us to expect as much, didn't they? Our father Abraham was saved. Why? He was blessed to be a blessing to all the nations. We remember Isaiah telling us over and over during our years in that prophet together that the Messiah would come not only to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel that he had kept, but that he would be a light to the Gentiles, to, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. There's even a gospel appeal. Do you remember that? In Isaiah, turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. And then this promise, that the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And that, as you know, is just the tiniest sampling of all that Scripture has to say and all the prophets about gathering the Gentiles. It was even shocking to the Jews to hear things like this. Gather all the Gentiles into Israel. In fact, Paul takes it a step further and he says that we are, we are the Israel of God. So what are the implications of all of this for you and, and for me? Well, first, come. Come. This is an open invitation. You, all of you in the hearing of my voice right now, you are all invited to the banquet. All of you. Jesus gives us bread, just as he did the 4,000 hungry men plus women and children. He gives us bread, and that bread is nothing less than the bread of heaven. It is himself. Come and eat. Without money, come and buy. Because Jesus gives himself freely to you. 
whoever you are. This is the gospel, the good news we read about in the Bible. This is the power of God, as Paul says, for salvation to everyone. Everyone who believes, to the Jew, to the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Ah, you say to me, you say, that sounds all fine and, and good, but, but you don't know me. And you don't know how sinful I am. I'm too sinful to come. Jesus would never have me. But you're wrong. You're totally wrong. If Gentile dogs can come, you can come. Jesus says, this is Jesus saying this to you right now. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says to you, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Come especially if you're in trouble. Come especially if you're hurting. Come especially if you are needy. Because look at how Jesus has compassion on hungry people and needy. Look how his bowels of compassion are activated by, by your need. Precisely by your poverty and your hunger and your need and your pain and your struggles. He healed the sick. He freed the oppressed. He fed the hungry. Will he do no less for you? Come. Come, all of you, to whom Jesus is coming right now. This very minute, Jesus is coming to you right now, and he is coming to you as surely as he walked into Decapolis. He has come to you, and he says, Come to me, receive me, and with me life in my name. Come. Second, go. There's a whole wide world of Gentiles, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight, we used to sing as, a, as children in our Sunday school class. We follow our Savior. You follow your Savior when you follow your Savior deep, deep into Gentile territory with the good news, with the gospel of salvation, whether that means right here in, in your own neighborhoods or to the uttermost parts of the earth. There's a set of footprints in front of yours as you go. It's your Lord's. Follow Him. And know this, you will find faith in the most unlikely of places. The disciples never expected to find faith, not in a million years, anywhere in Gentile territory. You know, they had to be scratching their heads and, and wondering as mile after mile they followed Jesus northward. You know, where are we going, Jesus, and why are we going there? How amazing then that, that while they were back home, so to speak, back in Galilee, they were met with unbelief, unbelief, unbelief. But here in Gentileville, they find great faith. It is grace. 
wrote J.C. Ryle, it is grace, not place, which makes people believers. And know this too. You will find faith even in the most unlikely of people. A Canaanite woman, a Canaanite woman has great faith. Don't write anyone off. Not when we have Saul, you know, the great persecutor hounding the Christians to their death turned missionary apostle to the Gentiles. John Newton, that converted slave trader and the author of our uh, hymn Amazing Grace said on one occasion, he said, I have never despaired of any man since God saved me. And go with all your heart. With all of your heart. How these disciples would be transformed, wouldn't they, in their passion for the lost? Here they can't even bring themselves to care about the crowds. Did you notice that? You know, when, when we were looking, when they were looking at 5,000 hungry Jews, do you remember this? They took the initiative to raise the question of food with Jesus. Now they're looking at a crowd of 4,000 hungry Gentiles, and what do they say? Exactly that. Nothing. Not a word. Apparently they just don't really care. My, how that would change later as one after another of these very same men gave his life to bring the gospel to the nations. At our PCA General Assembly a couple of weeks ago, we received a report, as we always do every year, from a delegate of the Presbyterian Church in Korea. This year, he led us in prayer, and as he led us, he thanked the Lord for those who brought the gospel, those who had brought the gospel to Korea over a century ago. Specifically, he thanked the Lord for a young American woman named Ruby Kendrick, who on June 20, 1908, was buried in Korea under a tombstone that reads, If I had a thousand lives, Korea should have them all. Ruby Kendrick hailed from Plano, Texas, where she was born in 1883. She graduated from Plano High School in 1903 and then pursuing her interest in missionary work, she attended Scarrett Bible and Training School in Kansas City, Missouri for two years and eventually she was appointed to serve a five-year stint in Korea. She set sail on August 29, 1907. In Korea, she was a language student and a Sunday school teacher, but less than a year later on June 20, 1908, Ruby Kendrick died of appendicitis at Severance Hospital in Seoul. And at her request, she was buried in Korea. Her last words home were the same as on her tombstone. If I had a thousand lives, Korea should have them all. 
In the letter she penned just before her passing away, she wrote, Dad, Mom, this land, Chosun, is truly a beautiful land, and I believe that in a few years it will be a land overflowing with the love of Christ. But the persecution's getting stronger. Two days ago, three or four of those who have accepted Christ less than a week have been dragged away and were martyred. Missionary Thomas and James were also martyred. I remember you, Mom, who resisted to the last moment of my leaving the port because of the stories of the hate of foreigners and opposition to the gospel. Dad, Mom, perhaps this may be the last letter I will be writing The seed that was sown in our backyard before I came here must be filling our neighborhood with flowers. Another seed bear many flowers in the land of Chosun, and they will be seeds to other nations. I will bury my heart in this land. I realize that this passion for Chosun that I have is not mine, but God's passion toward Chosun. Mom, Dad, I love you. Well, she was exactly right in her prediction, in her prophetic insight. Today, 115 years later, South Korea is a powerful missionary sending force providing the world's second largest number of Christian missionaries. You know, there are over 21,000 Korean missionaries serving in over 175 countries. Korea's missionary forces surpassed only by that of the United States. In one Decapolis after another after another, Gentiles are feeding on the bread that Jesus supplies, the bread of life, which is himself. Praise be to God that we find ourselves among them. And may we not come to that great feast in heaven one day, dear ones, to feed on that heavenly bread without also having brought some, if not many, of them along with us, ourselves. Amen.